Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Charlotte Mason's Call to Parents by Art Middlecoff. So we're going to talk about um, the call to parents and um, just like to give you a little bit of kind of background of myself and of, of my story. And uh, I'll talk about that, come back to some of these topics a bit later. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, and when my first child was born back in 1999, and I started to think about what we wanted to do in terms of education, um, my father-in-law shared a book with me, encouraged me to think about homeschooling. And I'm not going to be, you know, this presentation is not about why you should or shouldn't homeschool, and, and there's a lot in this presentation that applies to people who are not homeschooling. This is very broad and very general, but I'm just sharing you my own story. That's how we got started. And when we started homeschooling, uh, we needed to look for an approach, a philosophy to follow, a method to follow. And if any of you, you know, for people who know me, um, I'm the kind of person who doesn't like to do things like halfway. I'm kind of like, a, like an all-in person. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it like 100% with all of my effort. And um, so it's interesting because um, a lot of people don't think of education as an all-in kind of thing. Um, but one thing that Charlotte Mason talks about is she says that the, the common view is that we don't realize that education is the outcome of our philosophy. Therefore, our efforts lack continuity and definite aim. We're content to pick up a suggestion here, a practical hint there, without even troubling ourselves to consider what is that scheme of life of which such, such hints and suggestions are the output. You know, that's why I asked you last night to say, uh, if you don't have a clear idea from scripture about what a philosophy of education looks like, then where is your philosophy coming from? Where do we get... What is the scheme of life from which we get most of our kind of everyday conceptions of education? So I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be like that, you know. I wanted to understand a philosophy and not pick up hints or pieces here and there, but I wanted to follow a kind of a, a, a fully developed method. And so this was uh, back in, in uh, 2004 when I discovered Charlotte Mason and her method, and I decided... Um, that that would be the approach that we would use in our home school. And I decided, because I'm an all-in kind of guy, that I needed to research and learn about and understand the method. And so I started reading books. And one of the books that I read early on was this book called uh, Charlotte Mason Education by Katherine Levison. I read many other books as well, but this was one of the early ones that I read. And one thing that really excited me about this particular book is when I got to this page towards the end. And... Uh, the, there are in, these, these kinds of uh, tables and things are much more broadly available nowadays than they were back in 2004, 2005, 2006. But I, I saw this, and I got like really excited because I, you know, c since I'm an all-in kind of guy, and I said, well, we're going to do the Charlotte Mason method. So I thought, well, here I have like just absolutely like a blueprint, and if I just follow this and do this schedule. I'll be doing it right. And then I saw in the book it had this page, and I thought, wow, you know, this even will tell me exactly how many minutes that I should be spending on, uh, you know, on each subject. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is cool. Like, I have now 
you know, the template, I have everything that I need, I can be doing this method like fully authentically. Um, and then the next thing that I started to do though, because I didn't want to just, you know, read what other people had to say about Charlotte Mason and books like Catherine Levison and so on, I wanted to kind of read what Charlotte Mason herself said about education, because I'm the kind of person who wants to get down to the source and find out, well, what, what, what are the root of these ideas and where did she find these things? How did she justify her ideas from scripture and from science and so on? And, uh, but I thought it was a little bit intimidating to me. I didn't know that much about education. And I thought, well, how am I going to really read through these books, you know, and they're maybe hard for me to understand. And so there was a group at that time. This was, you know, Facebook wasn't very popular back then. Now this was 2007. And um, I don't even know if Facebook existed in 2007. And so there was this email group that was uh, reading through uh, Charlotte Mason's books on education. Um, and I heard about this email group and I thought, wouldn't that be a great way for me to learn? Like I can read a chapter and I can, you know, join the emails and I can kind of email my thoughts and see what other people are saying. And it seemed like a great way for me to learn as a parent, as a teacher, to kind of get better equipped and to have better understanding. So I joined this email group and first I was just like in stealth mode. So stealth mode means, you know, like I didn't tell anybody, I didn't introduce myself. I just kind of watched the flow of emails to see what it was about. And I started to notice something. Um, you know, pretty early on, I noticed that every like email that came in had one thing in common, and that was that the email was sent by a female. Like I noticed, like as I watched this, like I kept looking for you know Bob or Joe or <laughs> David to send an email, and those emails like never came. And so I thought, well, you know, I'd like to try to participate in this group, but maybe you know maybe this is like a lady, maybe this is the ladies group where we discuss Charlotte Mason. So. I kind of said, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to assume, I'm just going to ask. So I sent this email, and this is from uh, April 8th of, of 2007, um, and I said, hello, my name is Art Middlecoff. My wife, Barbara, and I homeschool our two children using the Ambleside Online curriculum. Barbara and I also started a Charlotte Mason study group in our area, which is just finishing volume one. I read volume two on my own. I'm now reading volume three according to the current schedule. As I've read the CM series emails on volume three, I've noticed that all of the emails have been sent by mothers. I'm curious whether or not this is by design. If it is, then I'm content to quietly withdraw from the group. <laughs> on the other hand, if the group can accommodate a homeschooling dad, then I'm inclined to share my reflections and questions as I read the chapter each week. Now, and just to clarify, I said I'm a homeschooling dad. That doesn't mean I'm a full-time homeschooling dad. I'm a, I'm a full-time uh, professional. Um, you know, I don't, don't work in New York City, but uh, my, my uh, headquarters for my company is in uh, the Chicago area, and uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a software professional, um, but I consider myself a homeschooling dad because that's what we do with our kids. And so I kind of waited with bated breath to find out, is this the one email I ever send, and then I kind of quietly withdraw? What's the reaction going to be? So I was delighted. What happened was within about four hours, there were like eight responses came in. And they were all very kind. And this was my favorite one. Um, this was Angie, who said, welcome, Art. Nice to see you here. I definitely think there's room at our table for you. Scoot over, ladies. <laughs> but did you bring any chocolate? Scones? <laughs> Grin? So, uh, so I thought that was great. I was very pleased, and I thought that was very kind. And I think, you know, when, when you're interested in educating children, and, uh, and learning about how to do that and, and take your responsibility as parents seriously, I think you find that other parents are welcome, you know, like that and are friendly and want to join and be part of a community with you to help you learn. 
Um, and so I saw that, that hospitality and that welcomeness, and it was really nice. So I, ju I jumped right in. Immediately after getting this email, I jumped right in and did the assigned reading for the week. And I read the assigned chapter in volume three of Charlotte Mason's original books on education. And uh, I kind of stopped a little bit dead in my tracks because when I was reading, I came across this paragraph in the assigned reading. It said, to keep a child in this habit of the thought of God so that to lose it for even a little while is like coming home after an absence and finding his mother out is a very delicate part of a parent's work. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I'll tell you what I shared. I read that, and I was quite honest, probably my second or maybe my second email to the group, this is what I wrote. Establishing the habit of the thought of God. For me, the most challenging, even overwhelming, of these habits discussed in this chapter is to keep my child in the habit of the thought of God so that to lose it even for a little while is like coming home after an absence and finding his mother out. Charlotte says this is a very delicate part of a parent's work. Delicate indeed. Charlotte says of the child, it should be said that God is in all of his thoughts. Oh, that it could be said of me that God is in all of my thoughts. I understand that one instills the habit of Christian practice as one instills the habit of closing the door. But installing the, the habit of God in all the thoughts, I am inclined to sneak back to chapter 3, to take refuge in masterly inactivity. This new habit of the soul, I say with Job, therefore I have uttered that which I understand not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. So the delicate work of a parent is to, is to develop a habit in my children so that they, are always, they always have thoughts of God in their heart. I'm supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? And I went back and looked at the schedule, and I tried to say, where, where does the habit of the thought of God, do we do, is that part of... Is that part of handicrafts or is that French? Were we supposed to do that between 9.30 and 10? Like I looked through this and, and then I looked at the list of subjects and I didn't see anywhere in here about how I'm supposed to help my children have a habit of always thinking about God so that when the thought of God isn't in their heart, it's like, it's like their mother has stepped away. And I started to realize that there was something more to education than math and science and languages. And there's something more to my responsibility as a parent in teaching my children that doesn't really fit into a timetable, but it has to do with my way of life and our way of life as a family. And I thought, I realized that I had had a very limited and superficial understanding of education and that I needed to broaden my perspective. And I needed to broaden my perspective about what is my responsibility as a parent, and I needed to develop, even as the name of this retreat is called, I needed to develop a vision for children. And so I entitled this presentation um, Charlotte Mason's Call to Parents, but it's a little bit of a, of a misnomer um, because 
you know, Charlotte Mason has no authority to call parents to do anything. But what she was trying to do is point to God's call to parents. Because God really does have a calling to parents. And because it's God's call to parents, be the parents' knowledge of this little of this law, little or much, no parent escapes the call. So the idea here is that as a parent, you may not fully know or understand your calling from God as a parent, but whether you know it a little bit or a lot or understand it or not, that's really not the issue. You can't escape the call. You have children. You're a parent. God has given you an assignment. The question is going to be whether you'll be faithful to the call. And so what I'd like to do in uh, discussing this is go through um, several different dimensions of this. And again, when we see Charlotte Mason's call to parents, think for yourself. I want to lay out for you the idea that this is God's call to parents. And if, you don't, if, if I don't lay out sufficient evidence that this is God's call to parents, then you can dismiss it. Because that's the authority that we're really talking about, is what is your responsibility before God as a parent? So what is the nature of the call? What is the priority of the call? How does it compare to all the other priorities that we have in life? How does this call relate to the instruments of education? And how does this call relate to schools? For those of you who don't homeschool, um, does that, does that do, you, do you still have a call as parents, even though your kids are going to some kind of school during the day? Um, how does it affect leisure time? And then how does it affect fathers? So we'll talk about parents in general, but is there a specific call or responsibility that fathers have? And then last, I'll talk about answering the call, uh, some of the challenges for answering the call and some thoughts and reflections on it. So I'll first start with the nature of the call. And the most important thing, um, and Charlotte Mason's assertion was that the nature of the call is that it is God-ordained. She wrote that it is probable that parents as a class and she's writing now in the late 19th century. She said, parents as a class feel more than ever before the, res- the responsibility of their prophetic office. It is as revealers of God to their children that parents touch their highest limitations. Their relation to their children is not an accident, but is a real office which they have been appointed to fill. What's an office? What's, what's the difference between an office and a job? An office is a position to which you're appointed to by someone. You're appointed to an office. Um, you may have an, an office in a church where you are called to take on a position. Officers are called, they're assigned, they're given a task of importance. And so the insertion here is that as a parent, you have an office. There's a place that you've been assigned in the development of your children. And it's a, called a prophetic office because you are the revealer of God to your children. One of the things that I like to think about is that, you know, we we think about the Ten Commandments and how the Ten Commandments uh, can be thought of as a summary of the moral law of God. They can be thought of as a summary of of what are the kinds of ways of living that are pleasing to God. Um, The Ten Commandments, uh, you know, my children are tied to me through the Ten Commandments in a way that they're tied to no one else on planet Earth. The law of God tells my children that they need to honor their mother and their father. That's me. It's not you. It's not the pastor. For the entire lifetime of my children, they are bound to me by the law of God to honor me. 
And so I have to ask myself a question. Am I going to make it easy for my children to follow and obey that requirement of God, or am I going to make it difficult for them? I have an office to fill. I have an office to fill that I've been appointed to by God. Um, and so the blessing of God is that he doesn't call us to things that he doesn't equip us for. And this individual work with each child being the momentous work in the world is put into the hands of the wisest, most loving, disciplined, and divinely instructed of human beings. As parents, we receive a special grace from the Holy Spirit to equip us to better understand our, the individual needs of our children and to be better able to care for them. So it's a very important calling, but it's one to which God doesn't leave us to fumble with by ourselves, but that the Holy Spirit is there equipping us and helping us. You know, it's interesting because if you think about it, God is all-powerful. He doesn't really need us to teach our children, right? I mean, God could just reveal himself directly to my children. God could train them in godly habits, and he could reveal to them, you know, he could bring them directly to the scripture and, and teach them from the scripture. And yet, so often in, in the mystery of the way God works in the world, he doesn't choose to do things all himself, but he invites real-world things and real-world people to participate with him and to become channels of his grace. And when you think about um, sacramental language is this idea of how we can be involved in being means of grace towards our children. And so when Charlotte Mason writes about this, she says that we perceive that God uses men and women, parents above all others, as vehicles for the transmission of God's gifts. And so we hear about how all our teaching should be given reverently with the humble sense that we are invited to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And the parent is no more than an agent of Almighty God appointed to bring children under the divine government. And this reflects what we see in Deuteronomy, the role of parents to be with their children and to share with them the word of God. So then I'd like to talk about the priority of the call. Um, so if we have a prophetic office, if we've been appointed by God, empowered by him to be vehicles of grace to our children, how important is that? And how does that tie in with the other aspects and responsibilities of our life? Um, Charlotte Mason quoted a, a French um, man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And there's a lot of things not to like about Rousseau. Um, he wrote an interesting book on education um, back in the 18th century. It was quite influential. And uh, there's a lot of problems with what he had to say, but there's one thing that he did do, is that he um, turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and so far made ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he touched somehow the conscience of parents in the 18th century Europe and made them awaken to their responsibility to their children. And uh, it's interesting that that reference um, ties into the very last verse of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, where the prophet Malachi says that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And that's actually the opening of the gospel. And so we read in the gospel about how John the Baptist will go before him, before Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we see here that for when Malachi pointed to the new covenant, what was going to be a sign of the new covenant and that God's kingdom was coming through Messiah onto the earth? One of the signs was going to be that the hearts of the fathers would be turned to their children. That's how we would recognize 
the presence of Christ in the world. And so John the Baptist came and he prepared the way for the Lord by doing this very thing, by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. So how important is this call? It's very important. It's very important as being a sign to reveal the coming of Christ in the world in the new covenant. Um, Charlotte Mason used very strong terms to express this. She said, fathers and mothers, this is your work and only you can do it. It rests with you, parents of young children, to be the saviors of society unto a thousand generations. Nothing else matters. The avocations about which people weary themselves are as foolish child's play compared with this one serious business of bringing up our children in advance of ourselves. Why, how is it that parenting is to be saviors of society? Well, because the family is the unit of the nation, of the civilization, of the world. It doesn't take a village to raise a child. It takes parents to raise children. That's the means by which God has ordained to create uh, a godly people to grow and to serve him. And so it's extremely important because the next generation of people who are serving God in the world are dependent upon parents and what they do. Why is it such a high priority? The beautiful, Mason writes that the beautiful infant frame is but the setting of a jewel of such astonishing worth that put the whole world in one scale and this jewel in the other and the scale which holds the world flies up out balance. Every child is created in the image of God. It's very valuable. That's why the, the, the law says that thou shalt not murder because a person is created in the image of God. Your children are image bearers of God and that makes them extremely valuable and, an extreme, and extremely important and we need to take that very seriously. Your child is more precious and more valuable than anything else in your home anything else in your life, because your children are the only thing in your home that's an image bearer of God Almighty. Um, this, this, another reason why it's so important is that this rule cannot be delegated. I can't say to my children, you know where it says in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Um, we're gonna make us, I'm gonna delegate that, and we're gonna put somebody else that you're gonna honor and respect. I can't do that. Um, the rule of parents cannot be deputed. The king may rule by deputy, but here we see the exigent nature of the parents' functions. He can have no deputy. Helpers he may have, but the moment he makes over his functions and authority to another, the rights of parenthood belong to that other and not to him. So the idea here is that um, if, you, if you choose to delegate, then you actually lose your rights as a parent. And what happens is children crave parents, they crave a parenting figure, and if you don't supply that to your children, they will simply choose somebody else, and somebody else will become that parent figure for them, and your rights and the special authority and the special place that you have as a parent, sadly, you will lose. And we see all around us that parents don't recognize those facts. And so one story that uh, was quite uh, convicting for me when I first read this uh, that Charlotte Mason writes about, she talks about the busy parent. She talks about how the busy parent occupied with many cares awakes to find the authority that he has failed to wield has dropped out of his hands, perhaps has been picked up by others less fit. And a daughter is given over to the charge of a neighboring family while father and mother hunt for rare prints. So the idea here is you've got these parents who are collectors because they care about things of value and they value rare prints. And so they go all over the world collecting these rare prints 
not realizing that they have something far more valuable than the rarest item in the world sitting in their home. And yet because they're concerned about so many other things, they find that someone else has taken over the authority and the affection of their children. Um, we see this even in, in the spiritual development of our children and parents who say, well, you know, I, I trust in Sunday school. I, I don't need to, to do Bible study in my home. I don't need to have family worship. I don't need to, to teach my children the Bible because they have Sunday school and it's going to be the youth program at church is going to take care of that. And uh, what Charlotte Mason said about that is she said that, the, that parents should make over the religious education of their children to a Sunday school is no doubt as indefensible as if they sent them for their meals to a table maintained by the public bounty. Suppose your church had a, I don't know if you guys have a, if you have a soup kitchen at your church and say, well, I don't need to feed my kids because the church has a, you know, the church has a place where they give food to the community. So uh, therefore, I don't need to worry about my meals. So that's the priority. Let's talk about the call and the instruments of education. We talked about last night about how education is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life. And we start with atmosphere. And um, we talked about how the atmosphere, remember the atmosphere is kind of those ideas that are emanating around you that your children breathe in. The atmosphere in which the child inspires his unconscious ideas of right living emanates from his parents. Education is an atmosphere. That is, the child breathes the atmosphere emanating from his parents, that of the ideas which rule their own lives. We talked about that a lot last night. We have the concept of discipline and about habits. And, um, you know, one thing I really emphasized last night was habit in the, in the neurophysiological sense of neural networks and how brain how neuroplasticity works and how brain development works and how we form habits no matter what. And I want to just balance that out. While certainly there is a, there is a physical dimension to habit, um, there, we, we also are, there also is a spiritual component of it as well. And uh, when we're talking about this idea of developing habits in our children that will help them for the rest of their life, we are also counseled to, Charlotte Mason writes, above all, watch unto prayer and teach your child dependence upon divine aid in this warfare of the spirit, but also the absolute necessity for his own effort. So the idea here is that there is a spiritual component to developing habits. There's a spiritual element, of course, to temptation, and that we need to join with both the spiritual and the physical aspect of helping our child develop godly habits. Some of the habits that, um, just to give you kind of a frame of reference, some of the habits that Charlotte Mason talks about that parents should be developing in their children. And remember, these habits are the, the skills that should become automatic so that our children, once they have these as habits, they go out into the world and they can effortlessly do these things and be a great productive member of society. So diligence, uh, reverence, gentleness, truthfulness, promptness, neatness, courtesy, it's a nice list of things, and by carefully ordering your home life and carefully cultivating habits, uh, your children can leave home with these as a, as a natural way of life for them that they just do without thinking. And then we have the idea of how education is a life, and it's the idea of, uh, of ideas and living ideas that enter the child's heart and frame the way he thinks about the world. And uh, Charlotte Mason points out correctly that the destiny of the child is ruled by his parents because they have the virgin soil all to themselves. This first sowing must be at their hands or at the hands of such as they choose to depute. And what exactly do parents sow? They sow ideas. 
And so the duty of parents is to sustain a child's inner life with ideas as they sustain the body with food. So just as you take care to make sure that your children are fed three times a day, take, chair to take care to make sure that you are also satisfying their hunger for knowledge and that you take very seriously that you're providing due portions to them of the sustaining ideas that sustain their hearts, their imaginations, and keep them interested and alive to learning. So then I want to talk about uh, the schools. Um, and again, you know, I recognize that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to uh, specifically advocate homeschooling. Um, you know, when I was, I mentioned, you know, when I had my first child, my wife and I, the last thing that we wanted to do was homeschool. And um, my father-in-law uh, pulled me aside when my son was three. And uh, my father-in-law, by the way, was actually a public school teacher and then principal. Um, so definitely part of that system. But he pulled me aside and said, Art, you know, what are you thinking about doing for educating your kids? And I said, I, I don't know, maybe public school, maybe private school, Christian school, I don't know. And he said, well, Art, I think you should think about homeschooling. And I said, no, Barbara and I don't want to homeschool. We don't want to do that. And, and he said, well, okay, that's fine, but could you at least read a book? And I, said, and I figured, okay, this is my father-in-law, I should respect him, he's asking me to read a book, how hard can that be? So I said, sure, whatever, I'll read a book. So this is the book that he gave me. It's not, not kind of a, not a on-your-fence, <laughs> not an on-the-fence kind of book. Um, so, so I read that, and um, I read it uh, over, I, I flew, I had a flight from Chicago to Seattle, I read half the book there, I read the other half on the flight back to Chicago, and by the time the plane was touching down in Chicago, I had made up my mind that we were going to homeschool. Um, it was a surprise to my wife, but that's another story. Um, but I don't, I don't mean to claim here, though, that, so while Charlotte Mason certainly talked about how to homeschool and gave a lot of guidance on that, she also talked about school settings. And she talked about, she also is definitely interested in, in helping schools to embrace a life-giving, Christ-honoring philosophy of education. And, um, and so there was, that was definitely part of, of the method, and there's plenty of things to think about and reflect on in terms of even if your children are, are going to a more traditional school. And uh, Charlotte Mason actually went as far as to even point out some of the benefits of schools, and I feel like to, to be fair and to show both sides, you know, I need to kind of show that I'm not, you know, that I'm not completely biased here. Um, she did point out that, uh, you know, she says that the home-taught girl may in happy circumstances excel in intellectual keenness and moral refinement, but for habits of work, power of work, conscientious endeavor in her work, the faithful school girl is as a rule far before the girl who has not undergone school discipline. And then she says the parents of the young genius will probably do him an injury if they do not give him the chance of the school training in habits of clear thinking and right judgment as well as the invaluable power of sustaining relations with his fellows. So she points out that there are benefits. There, those, haven't, those haven't convinced me to not homeschool, but she points out that those are some benefits. So given that, if she has those good things to say about school, then does that take, take the place of the role of parents? So when your kids reach, what, five, six, seven, and you send them off to school, does that mean you can kind of, you know, uh, rinse your hands and say, now I'm done, I've done my part. Um, so remember, again, Charlotte Mason said these positive things about school training, but then she said this, we may assume at once that the discipline of the school is so valuable that the boy or girl who grows up without it is at a disadvantage throughout life. Well, at the same time, the training of the school is so far defective 
that left to itself, it turns out, very imperfect, inadequate human beings. The point for our consideration is that the duty of parents to educate their child is by no means at an end when he enters upon school life because it rests with them to supplement what is weak or wanting in the training of the school. So what I like to say is this, parents, everybody, everyone homeschools. The question is just how many hours a day are you doing it? So you, you are responsible for the education of your children and if, they have, if you choose to send them to class for a certain number of hours a day, they are yours to homeschool the remainder of the day. And that is simply an obligation. What are some of the things that, what does it mean to supplement, what does it mean to supplement what the children are getting in school? Um, here are uh, some of the things that Charlotte Mason calls parents of school children of any age to be doing. Follow, encourage, and review their studies. Um, it's, in you know, it's interesting, I have a, a colleague of mine who works in India. He's the top performer of my team in India. And uh, he told me that when he uh, was going through school, his mother went through every single lesson, read every single um, text that he was reading, did every single assignment herself, and partnered with him every step of the way through his education, even though he was in school. Um, parents are responsible to provide a moral education. Parents are responsible to develop a heart of gratitude, kindness, and love in their children. Um, Parents are responsible to develop, to train their child in intellectual culture. Intellectual culture is this idea of having a sense of being able to appreciate good literature, having a sense of being able to appreciate beauty in art, not just to learn about art, but to develop a taste for art so that you love what is good and you love what is beautiful. It's the responsibility of parents to read aloud together, to read aloud as a family. So reading aloud not only for your little children before they can read, but read aloud with your children once they've grown up, even though they can read on their own. But this is about family togetherness and learning together as a family. This is a fascinating one, develop the child's poetic taste. So what Charlotte Mason suggests is that, um, okay, she's assuming that your children in school are gonna be learning about poetry and learning how to understand poetry, but the idea is it really rests with parents to help them understand what, what good poetry is and to help them understand the, the quality of poetry. And, ha and, and, and again, how do you do that if you're not valuing poetry yourself and making that part of your own culture and your own home life? Related to that is developing your child's aesthetic sense, helping them to understand what is beautiful visually in, in, in decor and in, uh, and in um, layout and in art and even to develop the child's sense of smell and taste, helping children to be able to better recognize through their senses and to be able to distinguish between uh, different flavors and different scents. So that's just a, a list that I pulled together from the writings. And so you can see that, you know, if we compare kind of this list, you know, we can see that those are all things that don't happen during the regular timetable of school. These are things that happen in the, in the after hours. And so we're really talking about the education that takes place 24-7. We're talking about the education that takes place in the home life. And so you, know, you kind of have to ask yourself the question, when your kids come home from school, or if you're homeschooling, when your kids come home from lessons, you know, is it a video game? You know, or is it being out in nature? What's your responsibility as parents to do? And is the, are the video games helping develop those list of qualities that we talked about earlier? Or do you say video games are fine because you know, they finished their classwork for the day?
Think about the habits that you're forming. And that leads into my fifth topic, which is around leisure time. And again, this leisure time question applies both whether you're homeschooling or doing traditional schooling or private school or whatever. There's three elements I'd like to talk about that, devotions, um, Sunday activities, and vacations. Um, so on the topic of devotions, um, Charlotte Mason urged parents to help their children develop a habit of doing daily devotions. Not just family devotions together, but helping your children develop a habit of doing individual devotions by themselves so that when they leave your home and go out into the world, they have that as a daily practice so that they wouldn't think they would, it would so that the thought would never even occur to them of going a day without spending private time alone with God and in his word. And she wrote that every word of God is the food of the spiritual life. And those words come to us most freely in the moments we set apart in which to recollect ourselves, read and say our prayers. Such moments in the lives of young people are apt to be furtive and hurried. It is well to secure for them the necessary leisure, a quiet 20 minutes, say, and that early in the evening, for the fag end of the day is not the best time for its most serious affairs. So what she's saying here is that uh, you need to take responsibility for, you, for cultivating the right time, helping your children to find the right time. Not just at the very end of the day where they lie in their bed, they're totally exhausted from the day and they say like, you know, a 30 second prayer, God, please help me make tomorrow a better day than today. You know, but actually that they set aside, you know, valuable time where they're fresh and alert and where they can have peace and enough time to reflect on God and hear from God. Because God speaks often in a very still, small voice. We have to be very quiet to listen. So parents, you help your children develop the schedule, no matter what their lifestyle is, to develop their schedule so that they can have this time to hear from God. Um, the second point is on Sunday activities. You know, most, you know, I know I recognize that families have non-traditional schedules, but many families have Sunday as a free time that they can be together as a family. And there's a lot that can be done with Sundays to make it a special day for your family and an educational day for your family. Um, the advice that Charlotte Mason gives is to say, let the day of Sunday be full of its own special interest and amusements. An hour's reading aloud from Sunday to Sunday of a work of real power and interest might add to the interest of Sunday afternoon. And this family reading should supply a pleasant intellectual stimulus. Uh, this next paragraph, I, I, I love it. I love this next paragraph because it, is, it shows how hard it is to kind of wrap, wrap one's head around these ideas nowadays. Um, she said, on a Sunday, a little poetry might well be got in. There is time to digest it on Sunday. Not only George Herbert, Vaughn, Kebbell, and the like, but any poet who feeds the heart with wise thoughts and does not too much disturb the peace of the day with a stir of life and passion. See? So what she's saying is, go ahead and read poetry on Sunday, but stay away from the poetry that you know, gets people really riled up you know, so think about, I know you guys have this problem where you, you pull out the poetry book on Sunday and everybody just gets everybody so riled up that, you know, that they, they lose that peace and relaxation of the day. So she's saying, stay away from that really fiery poetry that just, you know, 
So, uh, well, so, that, so you've been duly warned now to be careful about that. And then uh, the other aspect is music in the family is the greatest help towards making Sunday pleasant. There's so much beautiful, you know, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, what did he dedicate each piece of music that he wrote for? He said, to the glory of God alone. God gifted Bach. I mean, he's universally recognized as the greatest composer of music who ever lived. And he did it all for the glory of God. Uh, why did God give Bach that gift? Do you think maybe that he gave that gift so that it could be appreciated by the whole world, including your children? And Sunday is a great time for you to gather around and listen to wonderful music and develop that aesthetic sense together and to learn how to love and appreciate good music. That's God's gift to the world. And then we can talk about vacations. And um, there's kind of like uh, two sides of vacations. There's kind of like two errors that we can make. And almost all of these things, there's two extremes. And to try to find the middle path is so, is so helpful. One extreme is to say, oh, you know, we have vacation time. It's time to just completely kick back and just take a, com a complete break from everything and get into some kind of like catatonic state. Um, but the idea here is that with vacations, what Charlotte Mason suggests is that the whole secret of a successful holiday actually is that the mind must be actively, unceasingly, and involuntarily engaged with fresh and ever-changing interests. So it's a break from school, it's a break from the normal routine, but it's not a break from being a human being who's always learning. The idea is that a vacation is a time to engage with new things that you haven't seen before. You know, maybe it's time to take a trip to Williamsburg where you're learning in a different way and you're encountering different things. But then there's another extreme which tries to turn the vacation into like we're just gonna keep cranking through and we're just gonna keep learning. And so Charlotte Mason tells this very humorous story where she says, we heard the other day of a little girl who traveled in Italy with her parents in the days of dignified family traveling carriages. The child's parents were conscientious, okay, that's good so far, with the least possible waste of time in idle curiosity as to what the fair lawns through which she was passing might be like. A story like this, so I, I cut out a bit of the story, but what happens here is that this girl is traveling with her family, they're going in this carriage through Italy, but she's kept inside to work on math problems because the parents are really conscientious and they wanna make sure their child is always learning. And they don't realize that here's an opportunity for the child to be looking out and seeing the I Italian landscape and to be asking questions for the family to be discussing. So the idea here is um, the story like this shows that we are still so far from fully recognizing that our part in the education of children should be thoughtfully subordinated to that played by nature itself. So the idea here is you're going on a vacation in Italy take a step back from the programs to set aside the math worksheets, set aside the formal learning and allow the child's you know, exposure to a new place and new museums and new people and new language, allow, that, allow them to be immersed in that environment and make that vacation a time for interest to be kindled and new horizons to be open and for your child's mind to be open in ways that they couldn't be in any kind of classroom type of instruction. So now I wanna talk a bit um, uh, specifically about fathers. Um, Emily talked about the mother's key and uh, about how mothers especially have a, a special insight into their, into their children and that I believe that the Holy Spirit is with mothers in a special way in the upbringing of their children. So then the question becomes, you know, what, what's the role of dads? And uh, do dads kind of you know, do they kind of sit on the, the sideline? Are they cheerleaders? Do they just kind of make sure that mom has everything she needs in order to educate her children? You know, when you, when you look at um, some of the books that have been written about Charlotte Mason, it may sort of give that impression. Um, I mentioned last night Francis Schaeffer, who is a great uh, Christian ph uh, philosopher, theologian, and apologist in the 20th century, and his daughter, Susan Schaeffer Macaulay, 
uh, is really the one who's responsible for popularizing Charlotte Mason in the 20th and 21st century. Um, his Francis Schaeffer's daughter wrote this book called For the Children's Sake, and this was published in 1985, I think, or 86, can't remember which. And um, so you look at this book, and this book has, it's a, by the way, if you want to learn more about Charlotte Mason's ideas, this is, the, this is probably the best place to start if you want to read a book. It's a fairly short, and uh, it tells Susan Schaefer Macaulay's own story about, um, you know, she was uh, affiliated, of course, with the Labrie Fellowship, with her father, and this kind of shows how she discovered Charlotte Mason's method in England. Um, but, you know, it's a wonderful book. I love it. It turned me on to Charlotte Mason when I read it in, in 2004. But you look at the cover, and, uh, you know, there's a mom. It's a beautiful picture. There's mom, and there's the, the little girl. And where's dad? I mean, dad's probably, you know, like me, you know, out working somewhere. So dad's not part of the picture, but, you know, maybe that's just Susan Schaefer Macaulay's book. And then uh, Karen Andriola reprinted Charlotte Mason's original six volumes. There's other reprintings that have been done since then, so it's very easy now to get a hold of these books to, to read them more about education. But if you notice on the... There's no picture on the front cover, but if you notice on the spine of the book, I've kind of highlighted that in red. What do you notice about the picture? There's a, there's a mom. It's a beautiful picture. There's a mom, and there's a little, little boy, I think, this time. But where's dad? Where's dad? Um, and then this book came out in the 90s, I believe. And uh, maybe, no, the 2000s. i got to get these dates right. So this book came out um, written by multiple authors. This book was written mostly, actually, by people who are teaching in, in Charlotte Mason Christian schools as opposed to homeschooling. So different chapters by different authors. Great book, great essays in there. Um, interesting picture on the cover. What do you notice about the picture on the, on the cover? It's a nice lady. I mean, is, what, is, this, is this whole thing? I'm starting to see a pattern here. Um, so then Karen Andreoli reprinted Charlotte Mason's book on uh, grammar, uh, adapted from Charlotte Mason's book on grammar, and decided to, to do something different and feature a picture of a mother on the cover. <laughs> um, so I thought to myself, like, is this, again, by design? Have I missed something? Is this really for mothers? Um, but I'm a data guy. Um, I'm kind of in software, and so uh, I have, you know, digital versions of Charlotte Mason's six volumes, and so I decided uh, to, do a, uh, to do a word count. And um, so I have here a pie chart of, uh, of Charlotte Mason's writings, and the interesting thing is that um, she mentions parent more frequently than she mentions mother, and she mentions father 182 times. Um, through her books, and she even explicitly says that uh, girls often fare well when their fathers have a hand in their education. It turns out, actually, that in when uh, Charlotte Mason started her PNEU, she was very explicit about including fathers in the role of parents in instructing their children, and it was actually quite countercultural for her at the time. She was very uh, a pioneer in terms of saying that fathers need to have an involvement with their children, and somehow that pioneering aspect of her method kind of got, got lost in some of the modern interpreters who kind of zero in on, on the mother's role. And um, why, you know, the, the, my favorite kind of part that talks about fathers is that Charlotte Mason gives a fascinating about a 60-page account of the story of the education, the true story of the education of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Um, has, anybody, has anybody heard of Goethe? So Goethe, um, 
there's a street named after him in Chicago, and if you take the bus, um, they'll say, it's funny to listen to the bus driver try to pronounce it, because he'll say, like, okay, we're going to go to Goth now, or we're going to go to Gothi now, we're going to go to Goethe. So they kind of make a joke out of it, because there's so many different ways to pronounce it. Goethe is actually pretty generally known as the greatest German poet, um, a genius, the greatest German poet uh, who lived. And so the story of uh, his own education is fascinating, because it turns out that Goethe was homes effectively homeschooled by his father. And uh, so what we learn about Goethe's education is that young Goethe's father, who delighted in teaching, instructed his children himself. Goethe never seems to have gone to school. And this, remember, this is a genius. This is a man known as the greatest German man of letters. Goethe never seems to have gone to school except on one occasion when the family house was being rebuilt and the children were sent out of the way. There are still exercises of the boy preserved in the Frankfurt Library in German, Latin, Greek, and French, written between his seventh and ninth years. These exercises show that the manner of instruction was immediate and interesting, the father dictating what had struck himself. So here you have a father who's teaching his boy German, Latin, Greek, and French, directly, directly. Um, why did the, f there's some things that come across the page, and these are taken mostly from Goethe's own autobiography when he describes this. He talks about his father's own delight in learning. The father's love for the Italian language and for everything that concern concerning that land was very outspoken. He often showed the children a little collection of marbles and natural objects which he had brought away with him. So you see the father had a love for the Italian language, and so you know, boys want to be like their dads. And so you see your dad in love with learning, and you say, well, I want to be like that. Um, we also see his heart in uh, the father had a whole row of the beautifully bound works of poets. These the father read constantly and knew well, and so did the boy, who could recite many passages for the pleasure of his elders. Imagine a boy who could recite many passages of poetry whose father is not reading poetry. It's hard to imagine how those two things could coexist. But the father didn't just delight in learning. This is so important. The father delighted in his son himself. The father loved his son, not just loved him in the sense of cared for him and wanted the best for him, but the father truly delighted in his son. He truly enjoyed being with his boy. And he, he uh, we read that the, the boy's gift of language and rhetoric were greatly cherished by his father, and we see the father's investment in his son. The music lessons, here's just a couple of stories about that. The, the father observed that the music lessons were deadly dry and dull until that enterprising educationalist, the father, set up a young man who had been his secretary and who spoke French well and could teach it. His father observed that music lessons were boring. His kid didn't like it. And he didn't say, son, you really do love piano lessons. <laughs> Instead, he found a better teacher. He found a better teacher who made the lessons interesting and fun because he was involved directly. Um, we also read another example of the, of the investment uh, where the father bought a, a very valuable interlinear Old Testament. Um, and it made quite an impression on Goethe. You know, think about how books were expensive in, the, in these days and how um, he remembered this very precious book that his father bought, not for his own collection, but for his son to use. Um, the father was diligent in his teaching. 
um, we read that through hard work, Goethe soon learned to understand what his father would have him learn. Here's another example. The father was angry. So here's what, another story is that um, uh, they were in Germany and a, a traveling, kind of like an itinerant English teacher came to town. And the father, who's always interested in education, immediately, of course, signed up his son to take English lessons. But the teacher was only there for about four weeks and then he moved on. And so the father was like, well, hey, you know, you've started learning English. Um, let's not stop. And so the father was anxious that the newly acquired English should be kept up as fully as all the other languages at which the children had worked. So he just kept going and kept investing because he was so diligent. And Goethe talks about the unresting uh, efforts of his father. And so who was this man? Who was this father who was so devoted to the teaching of his son? His name was Johann Caspar Goethe. And what I like to say is that if I were ever to publish a book on a Charlotte Mason education, I'd like to have a picture of Johann Caspar Goethe <laughs> with his son, as opposed, instead of a picture of a mom with a child. Um, so then I'm just going to get, that's kind of a good lead into the last section of my, of my talk. And uh, this is about answering the call. So I've laid out to you the nature of the call, the priority of the call, how it relates to education, how the, the call ties in with schools, how the call specifically speaks to fathers. Why, what keeps us parents from fully giving ourselves to this call and fully devoting ourselves to the education of, of our children? And I think that uh, everyone can probably agree that the thing that keeps us from answering the call is time, because we're all very busy. We're all very busy with lots of good things. Um, and we kind of like to think that somehow in the 21st century, like our, our lives are more complicated and that we have it tougher than, than people did in the previous millennia of human civilization. And that, you know, life has just kind of conspired on us such that we're especially busy. And so we can't do these things that we read about other people having done. And it's interesting that Charlotte Mason in her uh, 19th century context, she recognized that time in her day was the biggest issue. And she wrote, uh, yes, but where is the mother to get time in these encroaching days to put Henry, uh, the child Henry under special treatment? She, the mother, has other children and other duties and simply cannot give herself up for a month or a week to one child. See, it's not new, actually. Back in the 19th century, she faced the same objection from parents. I hear what you're saying is all good, but I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. But here was her answer. She said, you know, if your boy, mother, if your boy were ill or in danger, wouldn't you find time for him then? Would not other duties go to the wall and leave some of your other responsibilities, you know, your other child, for example, for the time? her chief object in life. See, there's something about tragedies, illness, that help us to get clarity on what's really important and help us to understand uh, what our real and true priorities are. And um, a couple years ago, I was in Cincinnati and a small group of people who were Christian educators, homeschoolers, learning about Charlotte Mason, they asked me to join them in their home one evening. So I met with them in Cincinnati. And uh, there were couples. They were all m mom and dad, so it was nice that there were, there were a bunch of dads there. It's great to see lots of dads here also. Um, it's great to see dads interested in, in having a vision for children. And so I, I spoke with 
this group of dads sitting around the living room, and, uh, and I gave them a, a thought exercise. And I said, guys, um, I have a question. Suppose you found out that your daughter had a uh, very special and unusual rare blood disorder where she required daily transfusions. And it turns out that uh, because of some very, she's got a very rare you know, blood type, and it turns out that there's very, very few people in the world who have kind of the perfectly matching blood type that can provide these transfusions. And it turns out that you happen as the father to have just that right kind of blood. And so in order for your daughter to survive, you need to spend two hours every day in the hospital doing blood transfusions with your daughter. What would you do? Would you be able to dedicate two hours of every day to providing blood transfusions for your daughter? And think for a moment, how do you think the dads in the room responded? You know, did the first dad say, well, I, I don't think I could do that because Certainly not Monday, because Monday nights I watch football. So I wouldn't be able to do the blood transfusion Monday night. And then the next guy said, well, I couldn't do that because, well, see, I serve on a, on a nonprofit board and we meet every Tuesday night, so I'm, I'm afraid that I wouldn't be able to give her that transfusion. And then did the next guy say, well, on Wednesday night, I can't give up two hours on Wednesday night because that's kind of midweek and you don't know how tough my job is. And when I get home from work, by the time Wednesday comes around, that's when I veg out. And I can't give up my veg out time for this transfusion. And then Thursday night, you know, the next guy, he says, well, I can't do it because on Thursday night, well, see, I have a game night with my friends and we get together, you know, the guys, because I need to have some guy time with my friends. And so we do that Thursday night, so I wouldn't be able to take care of my daughter on Thursday night. <coughs> and, you know, Friday, everybody wants to go out and have fun on Friday night. Do you think that's what they said? Every single person said, Art, of course, of course, I could give up two hours of every day to give blood transfusions to my daughter. In fact, I have never met a Christian man who has told me that if his daughter needed his blood for two hours a day, that he wouldn't do it. But the reality is that your children don't need, fathers, your children don't need your blood. They need your heart. And they need your heart every day. It's not about your unique blood type that perfectly matches your daughter or your son. Fathers, it's about the fact that your unique gifting from God the Holy Spirit is what your children need. God chose you and you only to be the father for your children and they need you and they need your time. They need your time. But again, it comes back to time. And we say, but Art, you don't know how busy I am. You don't know how important the things are in my life. I don't have the time to do what you're telling me that I should do. Life is different now. It's not the way it used to be. Well, it turns out that time was even an issue, even in the high Middle Ages. And in 1377, Catherine of Siena wrote the following. She said, and then our heart rises up in search of how we might best spend our time. 
This is the 14th century. She said, for we never seem to have enough time. But in our concern for souls, we steal time from ourselves. That is, time that we might have had for our own comfort, any comfort, new or old. And we give that time to our neighbors. There are many things that I would like to do with my time. There are hobbies that I would like to pursue. There's books that I would like to read. There's places I would like to go. There are concerts I would like to attend. There are friends I would like to see. There are games I would like to play. There are classes I would like to take. And you know what? I have a right to enjoy every single one of those things for my own comfort. But I have stolen those things from myself. And I have transformed them into the gift of time which I give to my children. Why would I do this? Why would I steal time from myself? There's only one reason why I would do that, and that's because of love. It's because of love. Charlotte Mason quoted this beautiful poem by Wordsworth. Talking about the nature of love, Wordsworth says, Your love hath been, nor long ago, a fountain at my fond heart's door, whose only business was to flow, and flow it did, not taking heed of its own bounty or my need. I thought about this poem one night when I was driving home from work, and it was a Tuesday night, and I was exhausted. I had given everything that I had to give at the office. And I thought about coming home and spending time with my children and educating them and teaching them and sharing with them in all the ways we've described here. And I said, I can't. I don't have any strength left. I have nothing left to give to my children. And then I remembered this poem. And I remembered there's this poem that says that love is only businesses to flow. Love doesn't take heed of its own bounty. Love doesn't take heed of how much is left. Love gives and love flows. And so I came home and I loved my children. And I spent time with my children. And God gave me the strength. God gave me the strength to do so. Love is like a muscle. And Charlotte Mason wrote that love grows not by what it gets, but by what it gives. See, I might have thought to myself, if I can just take that night to myself and relax, then I'll have the strength that I need to love tomorrow. But it turns out that that's not where love comes from. Love comes, from, love comes from loving. Love comes from giving. It's a very unpopular message nowadays to talk about this sort of thing. Um, I read a blog article that uh, back in 2008, a woman named Michelle Quigley wrote this in her blog, and it's stuck with me now for almost 10 years. She wrote in her blog, when I feel the stress and challenge of these days, I am tempted to go inward, not spiritually, but selfishly. I want to hibernate, relax, do something for me. But a funny thing happens at my house when I start focusing too much on myself. Everyone starts focusing on themselves too. It's all about love. It's about following our Lord's example and laying down our lives. It's about burning up that which is not of God and turning towards him by turning towards others and away from ourselves. 
You know, all the things I'm talking about here, stealing time from yourself, loving when you have no strength to love, giving radical amounts of time to your children and their education, it all sounds crazy, and Michelle acknowledged that. She says, oh, I know. That's so contrary to what the world would tell me. The world would tell me that I need to find myself and be fulfilled. But I don't need to find myself. I know exactly who I am and what fulfills me. The world has no clue. But thanks be to God, I do. And you do too. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry audio blog. We hope you enjoyed the program. 